episode 15 of the Bowery Boys. It's showtime at the Apollo. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And uh, we're glad to have you here for another week. I might sound a little funny to you this oh, time. You always sound funny. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, you always are funny. Oh, I was, uh, I'm, I've been a little under the weather, as you can he- tell. I've got my, my soul voice, my li- light jazz voice <laughs> on. Um, you know, it works, I have to say. It's, I'm kind of envious over here. Well, thanks. Maybe I'll get sick more often. Maybe I'll get sick every week. Um, and, you know, so I got my soul voice on. And actually, We're sitting I, so close to each other, maybe I'll be sick next week. <laughs> Probably. Uh, so anyway, we're ha- we just happen to be doing, uh, for today's subject, uh, the Apollo Theater. Mm. And I've actually been wanting to do this one for a while. On our website that we do, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We have a feature called Friday Night Fever. And every Friday we do the history of some famous nightclub in New York City from early Bowery days to like up until like the 90s. This, the Apollo Theater, I've always wanted to do there, but it didn't fit because it really is a class above all the nightclubs. It is a concert venue, but it's so influential. It's basically this and the Grand Ole Opry are basically the two most important musical venues in the in United States history. But this one has still managed to keep its originality and it's fun and you can still see it on television every Saturday. So we want to take a look at its history. So I'm sorry, I'm just so fascinated by your voice. It's so <laughs> it's so good. It's like a two-pack-a-day voice. Oh, uh, thanks. <laughs> and finally, for, at the end of the show, we're going to read some of our letters from our listeners. So Yeah, so this will actually be the first podcast ever that will feature Ella Fitzgerald, James Brown, and you. <laughs> <laughs> and a woman named Catwoman from Brooklyn. So stay tuned. We're going to the Apollo. Okay, so before we get to sort of the Apollo theater history, we do need to take you back a little bit, don't panic, to kind of the history of Harlem. We're, gonna, we're only going to mm. go back to the 17th century here for like a second. Wait, but... I, ha- I have 10 minutes of notes here. <laughs> no, no. Peter, Peter Stuyvesant. No, stop it. <laughs> this is actually week three of Stuyvesant. <laughs> so anyway, but just no. a really quick history of, of Harlem, just to give you a sort of background of so what the Apollo's let's, doing here. Let's go back. It was an Indian settlement way back in the beginning, that entire area. In 1658, Dutch settlers established Neu-Harlem, which Neu-Harlem. was a, Neu-Harlem, uh-huh. New Harlem, actually named by our friend Peter Stuyvesant. Oh, there we go. Yep. Re, it, it would be later renamed Harlem without that A. They drop an A mm-hmm. uh, by the British. And it was a small village w- where people had small farms. I mean, we're talking about only dozens of families living up there for about 100 years. And mm-hmm. by the time of the revolution, Harlem had become a place really of gentlemen, farmers with estates and beautiful homes. It was gorgeous. You have to remember the topography was different at this time. Well, it goes in and out as a place of, of wealth, actually. So well, it this, goes back era, yeah, then, this right. time was 
it was wealthy. There were estates. Hamilton had his estate. Oh up yeah, there. Hamilton Heights is right up above Harlem. And right. it wasn't like you could just like skip uptown from you know from the base of Manhattan because there were all of these hills. And again, the topography was so much different. Uh, than it was today. In fact, in 1811 is when the grid entered the system. Suddenly, mm-hmm. with the grid system in place, Harlem was in the same sort of territory as, could, as Lower be, Right. It's, it sort of became part of the rest of the city at that point. Right. right? And, okay. and people thought of it in terms of developing and developing mm-hmm. one, one city. In 1835, a rail line opened uh, called the New York and Harlem Railroad that went up along Park Avenue in 1873, then Harlem became part of New York City. It was, oh, okay. it was annexed it was into the city. But the big thing happened in 1904. See how we've sped up through 1904? <laughs> Already 20th century. Yes. Yeah, when, when the Lenox Avenue subway line opened, and this just fueled a development boom with speculators and with developers and construction teams putting up lots and lots of row houses, brownstones, apartment buildings. Just beautiful ones that are still preserved these today that you should, everyone should go visit if you ever take a tour up there. And so. we should note that up until this point, really, the area was very white. And oh, sure. In fact, they, they developed so much that there were lots of empty apartments. They couldn't get enough people to buy apartments and to rent places out up there. Right. So is that that's when the... Uh, the Great Migration basically came in, right? And a lot of blacks moved into the city around that point, and that's where they... Well, this right, right. coincides with the post-Civil War. I mean, if we rewind a little bit post-Civil War, we have the Great Migration with African Americans moving to northern states in, in search of jobs, and blacks were moving into the Harlem area, finally, at about this time. By the 1930s, the population density in Harlem was twice that of the rest of the city. So the the Apollo opened in 1913, 1914. Right. Basically. Okay. It was opened by these two men, James Hertig and Harry Seaman, and they actually opened it as a burlesque. Mm. Uh, they were, you know, burlesque were very popular in the city at the time. You know, women standing on stage, peeling off their stockings while a uh, big band or jazz music was playing or, you know... Uh, Tooting their horns. Exactly. And it was not called the Apollo, of course. This oh, was, oh, was okay. Right, Hertigs and Siemens' new, parentheses, burlesque theater. Okay. And that opened right there on, on 125th Street, which is the main commercial street. Now, that was designed by the architect George Keister. In 1928, a burlesque overlord of the whole city, I guess, his name was Bill <laughs> Minsky, bought up the place. And he was the one who actually called it 125th Street Apollo Theater. So that's Bill Minsky, renames it the Apollo, but then it's taken over again. We hope we're not losing you here. But four years later, a man very important to the Apollo story, Mm -hmm. Sidney Cohen, comes into the picture. He takes it over, and it would be two years later in 1934 when he opens the theater for the first time to African Americans with a, quote, colored review called Jazz a la Carte. And this is... Hugely significant. Well, it's, it's the first black performances for black audiences. Right. And just to step back just a second to describe what this means at this particular period of time, this is taking place at sort of like near the end of what we consider the Harlem Renaissance. And what that basically is, as we just mentioned, there's a huge influx of African-Americans moving into Harlem at this particular time. What you have then is you have like a, a real urban community of thousands and thousands of black people. And what you get is you really foster rich cultural talents, you know, groups of people together with similar life experiences. All of a sudden you create a cultural elite. So 
important writers, important artists, important musicians are all coming out at this particular time. And this was really the first time that blacks were taken seriously by white consumers, too, who were buying uh, literature produced by blacks, blacks being taken seriously in the political spectrum. This was a hugely significant time. You had writers like Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. You had actors like Paul Robeson, who had already achieved a certain degree of fame, sort of taking on the mantle here also as more of a political activist as well. Right, the political activists working with the newly formed NAACP and the Urban League and leaders such as Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Dubois. I mean, this was a, a time when there was a lot of activity happening really in the same geographical mm-hmm. area. Now, and meanwhile, while this is going on, to, to give you what's happening in the nightclub scene, because that is pertinent to what's happening at the Apollo, there are a lot of nightclubs in Harlem at this particular time, but most of them, believe it or not, are catering to white audiences with black entertainers. So, for instance, the Cotton Club, which I think a lot of us have heard of, it was great black entertainers, but white audiences. There was even a street called Jungle Alley on 133rd, which was a row of lounges that really catered to white stere- white stereotypes of black people and had like jungle shows and people doing minstrel shows. Which makes it all the more notable then that the Apollo was actually opening its doors to black audiences. And it was a, you know, and it was a theater that had like an astounding beautiful sound system, one of the best in the city, a high fidelity RCA sound equipment. Um, but it also had a night that would, of course, make it famous, and that would be called Amateur Night at the Apollo. There was this man by the name of Ralph Cooper. He had a radio show, the Harlem Amateur Hour radio show. He approached the owner of the Apollo at that time for an idea to have like a live show every week where he could like debut new fresh so talent. This was a live version of his radio show? Correct. And oh. it's this, the format then is almost the same as it is now. If You turn, you can watch it on Saturday night now. And it's still a, basically the same thing where people would get up on the stage and they would perform and the audiences are so vibrant and wild that if you just have like one false step, one false move, they'll <laughs> boo you off the stage. And well, there's they, like... They say it's the world's toughest audience. As, as Ralph Cooper himself said... Anyone who has read about hubris in old books can watch it work on the Apollo stage where the smug and cocky routinely crash and burn and where the meek and trembling can surprise the world with voices full of power and emotion than they ever guessed they had in them. So that applies very, very poignantly Mm. to the very... And the meek and gentle have actually surprised them audiences from that very first performance in 1934. The very first winner was a 15-year-old girl and her name was... Ella Fitzgerald. Oh. She was supposed to go on as a dancer, uh, but when she when she got there, she saw that she was up against these like uh, they were called the Edward Sisters, and they were an intimidating duo. And she they knew sound they were, intimidating. You know, she was Ella herself was just wearing like hand me down clothes and men's boots, and the Edward Sisters had sequins and dancing shoes. But so she oh. was so embarrassed that she actually went on stage and she sang instead. But, you know, this is Ella Fitzgerald. So when she's going on, she's going to, like, change the world with her voice. And she, she, she even forgets the lyrics of the song, but she, she starts scatting. So <sighs> this is, I mean, this is one of these stories. A you born just can't performer. Even, exactly. But she's not the only major celebrity icon who, was, who debuted on Amateur Night. In 1943, you had Sarah Vaughn won Amateur Night. In 1969... The Jackson Brothers won Amateur Night. They were a group of five young guys 
that Gladys Knight had discovered in a Chicago talent show and brought, and they won. And the next performance, they changed their name to the Jackson Five. And wow. history is made. And the list goes on and on. I mean, Leslie Uggams, Pearl Bailey, Dionne Warwick. Wilson Pickett. Even people who didn't win, people right. who were booed off the stage became famous. Oh, those are the best. Well, yeah. Luther Vandross was, had actually been booed off twice. And my old friend Lauren Hill. Was got, booed off the stage, I right, know. When, when she was studying at Columbia. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. But yeah, we should note that this is the Amateur Night was just one night. That, you know, there are many other shows and reviews going on. And of course, later when the sort of concerts started happening there, you had just icon after icon just having like sold out shows there. And some stars would actually find their home at the Apollo. Correct. And they would perform multiple times, two, three, four times Mm -hmm. a day. And the shows were so successful, you can imagine the crowd so enthusiastic that the management actually had to show B-films in between the shows to get people oh. basically to leave their seats and get out of the theater. <laughs> they would chase them out, you know, with, with an old... bad films. With a Ronald Reagan flick. But you had... Um, for Bonzo. <laughs> I mean, you had like these regular performers like Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor. Right. Uh, Moms Mabley was this female comedian who performed there for at least 20 years who had basically had a regular home there. And so these were kind of vaudeville shows too, right? I mean, she, she wouldn't perform the entire show. She would probably have an act in with some other. Well, I think it was probably all different, different sorts of stuff. She was probably interspersed in a, in a review of sorts. But Well, and this is, the, I mean, almost the ridiculous task here of recounting some of the big names from the Apollo from the 20th century yeah, because <laughs> every major black star from the 20th century, yes. for the most part, performed on the stage at the Apollo. In 1935, you had like Bessie Smith, and that was one of the first real big stars that performed there. In the 40s, you had Nat King Cole doing sold-out shows. 1956, if you can believe this, Josephine Baker performed for several sold-out shows. You know, by that time, she's an old lady from her heyday in Paris in the 20s. Um, Aretha Franklin, of course, had, you know, sold-out weeks and weeks there in the 60s. And then they'd have other traveling shows, for instance, a traveling Motown review. In 1962, yeah, Barry Gordy. I mean, Motown had, wasn't these, these these people weren't even stars yet, and you could go to the Motown Review and see these up and coming stars like the Supremes, <laughs> Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, Little Stevie Wonder. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't all black performers. It wasn't all African American performers. There were even you know 
Buddy Holly performed there. Yes, but I thought I read that that was often because people booked him because they thought he well, was black. Well, that's that's you know, he, or is he that was, just legend? No, that's where they. That's 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 very true. But even recently, like recent performers, I mean, okay. there's all sorts of people who perform up there now. Uh, Tony Bennett actually had like a Billy Holiday tribute in 1997. Bjork performed there. Corn. <laughs> and who knows what she is? <laughs> I, know. I don't know what's and the Species. aliens. <laughs> aliens performed there. No, we do um, love Bjork. The Strokes and. I mean, yeah. so it's it's become a, it's become such a world-renowned venue that I mean, it's just to perform there would be an honor. But we for, I failed to mention, of course, the main, the most important figure of a, of Apollo music history, uh, James Brown, ah. who also won Amateur Night in 1956. He was he was from the South, but he came up won Amateur Night in 1956 and came back again and again. According to Billy Mitchell of the Apollo Astorium, who you can actually get tours with, by the way. He's the guy who gives you the tour through the Apollo. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, he actually said that James Brown drew the biggest crowds of any entertainer, and that's no small feat, at the Apollo. He recorded four live albums, including his first one, Live at the Apollo, which Rolling Stone called, in their top 50 most important albums of all time, listed as number 24 and called it the most important live album of all time. Wow. But his final act unfortunately, was when he died in late, late, late 2006. His funeral was in the first part of 2007. It was at the Apollo. Right. He actually laid in rest on the stage of the yes. Apollo. With the, He had a white carriage and two horses pull him down 125th Street. His, he had a gold-plated coffin, and he was wearing a blue suit, white gloves, silver shoes. Mm. They had had, uh, they, believe it or not, had had other funerals at the Apollo, but it was for employees. Ralph Cooper, who we mentioned, had his funeral at the Apollo, but oh, wow. he was the first performer, believe it or not. Wow. And the theater itself, during the race riots in the 60s, the Apollo was pretty much untouched. Right. Most historians agree that it was out of respect to the theater. Mm-hmm. In 77, 1977, shows were actually discontinued and the Apollo oh. switched over to a movie theater, That's which right. didn't work very well. And the theater <laughs> actually closed the next year and sat around until 1981 when it was bought by the former Manhattan Borough President, Percy Sutton. He purchased the Apollo and launched a renovation campaign and won it landmark status in 1983. And it was four Mm. years later, in 87, that Showtime at the Apollo, the TV show, started running on national TV. And it's been in continuous runs since then and with so many different kinds of hosts. I mean, my personal favorite being Monique. (laughs) And it's really done a lot, I think, to restore the reputation and... Because they still find stars. They're still finding people who become stars. Well, and people today who wouldn't even say know who Billie Holiday is are familiar with the show because of its current... Right. I mean, American Idol wishes they could come up with, you know... American Idol owes a lot (laughs) to the Apollo Theater. Absolutely. In the 1990s, during Harlem's... The the beginning of Harlem's second renaissance, uh, under the leadership of then-Mayor David Dinkins... Entrepreneurs started opening up new businesses in Harlem, renovating buildings. Crime began to to drop in Mm -hmm. the area. Once again, Harlem is experiencing another real estate boom. It has been for about a decade or so. Yes, but it's in the middle of it right now. And the the theater, too, is going through its own little boom. It's under new management since 2003. And it's in the midst of a $65 million renovation project 
uh, that's wow. expected to be finished by December of next year, and I believe, 2008. And you even you even went inside of it. You didn't get take the tour or anything. Well, did we you? were both there. Well, I was on a different time, but a different time, <laughs> same day, last Saturday. Well, I, I happened to see the uh, the line for the tryouts for the for the amateur night, and Actually, that was, was on rough. Saturday morning. That was Saturday. I was up there Saturday morning, and it was wrapped around the block. People singing, dancing. Wow, that's great. And but you went in, inside and you saw the right. I was uh, there in, about three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I went in, and they told me to come back at 4.30 for tickets to the show. They were handing out free oh, tickets. excellent. But if you'd like to visit the Apollo today, the amateur night takes place every Wednesday at 7.30. You can go on the Apollo's official website, which we will be oh, linking to in the of blog. Of course, of course. Of course, to find out how to get tickets. Now, winners from the amateur night have a chance, then, of appearing on Showtime at the Apollo on TV. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't a guaranteed thing. That but if you're good enough, if you do it, okay. Right. In addition to that, the Apollo Today is really sort of a community arts center with a great mm-hmm. arts outreach program with lots of special events and historical tours, like you mentioned. Right. And it should be noted that the Apollo is the top attraction in Harlem yes. for tourists, and Harlem is the, the third most popular in New York, New York City. City. So, I mean, that's, and that's real no small feat, definitely. So None at all. And we should mention, finally, the Tree of Hope. If you see the show, you'll notice that some of the performers come on, they rub this piece of wood. Right, there's that strange piece of wood. But, you know, by the way, isn't it funny? We just keep coming back to trees. We had Peter Stuyvesant's pear tree last episode. We had the hangman's tree right. from the Washington Square episode. Right. Here's another tree. But this one's a little bit more... This is it from like a, Keels? It's, this is not the Keels. This is not a Keels tree. This, is, this was a killed tree, unfortunately. Oh, it was, uh, good. It was on, um, outside of a Lafayette theater, and they call it the Tree of Hope. And what they... Now the Lafayette Theater was in Harlem as well. Oh yes, it was. An, it was another theater, just kind of just down the, the road. And it, there was a superstition for actors and singers that if you rubbed the tree for luck, that it would uh, provide you with whatever wishes, and that you would do a good job at your auditions or whatever. And unfortunately, the tree itself was torn down when Adam Clayton Boulevard was broadened. Mm-hmm. But before they chopped it down. Ralph Cooper took a little bit of it and he brought it to the stage. And so now any all performers since the 30s have just, you know, rubbed or kissed it for luck before they went out to sing. A so. piece of uh, respect or superstition, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, it's but look, it seems to work. All these performers have come from here. So maybe there's something to it. Wow. <laughs> Now for the final act of tonight's podcast, yes, we are at listener letters. Yes, we've been getting so many letters uh, since we started the podcast, and I mean, we like, love yes. it. So please keep writing. We re- yeah, we, we really appreciate. It. We we read and hopefully respond to everyone. If we if, if you've sent us one and you haven't re- we haven't responded yet, it's just because I'm really slow. So I apologize. <laughs> but thank you so much for you send us extra facts, just insights, personal stories, corrections. Yes, you can get the emails off the website boweryboyspodcast.com. Let's start with a letter from Brooklyn. This is a response to the Coney Island. Okay. Remember the Coney Island doubleheader that <laughs> Do we had? remember back then? I think remember I recall it. <laughs> yes. Well, she writes, Before listening to the Bowery Boys Coney Island doubleheader, I was pretty torn up about the current situation. New Yorkers have been privy to conflicting reports about the beloved Playland's future for months. Talk about a nauseous ride. 
<laughs> clever, right? She yes, continues, very- greedy characters from Coney Island's past have already proven capitalists and freaks can coexist. My suggestion, replace shoot the freak with shoot the CEO. Imagine the crowds that would line up to spend every $7 of their hard-earned hourly minimum wages. <laughs> Signed, Meow, Catwoman from Brooklyn. <laughs> the Catwoman? What happened to Meow, a, indeed. I don't think I have any letters here from the Batman, so we're not <laughs> fairly representing our city of Gotham. But <laughs> I, I'd like to think that was Eartha Kitt riding oh, from the Oh, that would be perfect, wouldn't it? Um, I have a letter also um, about Coney Island. Uh, it's yes? from uh, Greg from Colorado. He writes, uh, in your Coney Island two-parter, you mentioned the human roulette well. I live in Denver, and at one of our local amusement parks, Lakeside, they had a fun house that had one of these contraptions. I always called it the poker chip. Same concept. Pile on as many bodies as possible. Start it spinning and watch them fly. <laughs> a bit of advice if you're wearing shorts, keep your legs up or watch out for friction burn. Oof. The fun house at Lakeside also had one of those barrel of fun like you described. I kid you not, once you stumble and fall in there, it's not that easy to stand up again. Now, as I'm the sick one, why am I reading this letter about all these rides? I'm getting a little <laughs> nauseous. But Well, thank you for your letter, Greg. I thought it would be a barrel of fun, yeah, indeed. Thank you. Meanwhile, native New Yorker Christopher W. writes, and I should preface this by saying that Christopher is a history major and pretty smart guy here. He's he's got a correction on the Coney Island. Nathan's opened in 1916 on Coney Island selling his five-cent hot dogs to compete against his rivals selling 10-cent dogs. He was in immediate danger of closing because business was so bad. People thought that the cheaper dogs meant he was using cheap or bad meat. To put this in its proper context, you have to remember that only 10 years before, in 1906, Upton Sinclair published his scathing expose on the meatpacking industry, Mm -hmm. The Jungle. We should do that one later. Right, right, right. People were disgusted and outraged by what he showed the world it was being fed. To combat this, Nathan had a master stroke of public relations. He approached local doctors and nurses (laughs) and offered them free food under two conditions. One that they had to wear lab coats and uniforms, and two, they had to eat as close to the windows as possible. (laughs) When pedestrians walking past the windows saw the doctors and nurses eating the five-cent dogs, they thought that if these learned men and women were eating them, (laughs) they must be all right. The rest is history. I wonder if one of these Nathan's dogs could, like, cure my cold right now. (laughs) I should go down and check. And finally, the final letter is actually, it's about an older podcast on the Central Park Zoo. But I was saving this one one, because this is incredible. Um, This is James from Florida, but he actually worked at the Central Park Zoo. So I especially enjoyed your podcast on Central Park Zoo. I was the first keeper hired when the new Central Park Zoo was being built. So I have a strong interest in the topic. You mentioned that the new Central Park Zoo was built by the Wildlife Conservation Society, which was the New York Zoological Society at the time. Originally, I had started at the Bronx Zoo Bird Department. Mm. So he knows of whence he speaks. Right. So anyway, he, he talks to, he, he brings up the gay penguins. You mentioned the penguins, Roy and Silo. These two birds were named after two people who worked at the zoo at the opening Roy was named after Roy Riff, who was the first marine mammal trainer. Silo was named after Tony Brownie, who is still one of the supervisors at the zoo now. 
one of the keepers was kidding Tony about how much he was eating and said he was a virtual silo. So the name oh, stuck, okay. and we used to tease him about it. We, n- we named one of the first Scarlet Macaws Silo, but he and his mate were eventually sent to another zoo. So the name was then bestowed onto the penguin, uh-huh. who then, of course, eventually hooked up with Roy. Huh. And then very briefly, he also mentioned one of the fun parts about working at the Central Park Zoo was watching all the celebrities who stopped by the zoo. Everyone from Jackie O, Woody and Mia, Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, Barbara Streisand, and many would stop by with the kids to enjoy the zoo. They were always low-key and wanted to have fun with their families, so we always left them alone. I'm sure that there is still a celebrity parade every day. So you go to Just Central Park. another <laughs> reason to go to the Central Park Zoo or to download the Central Park Zoo podcast. <laughs> it's like seeing Barbara Streisand in person. <laughs> so have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. <laughs> 